Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. The fact that Joyce never came back to live in Ireland and wrote or spoke harshly about Ireland is really only a fraction of the story. Ireland was in him, I would think, in every waking and sleeping part of his conscious and unconscious. And a moment in Finnegan's Wake, not a typical moment, but there's nothing typical in Finnegan's Wake that I love, is his description of the outskirts of Dublin and the flowers that he imagines or remembers are both growing there. The cornflowers have been staying at Ballymun. The dusk rose has chewed out Goatstown's hedges. Two lips have pressed together them by sweet rush. Townland of twined lights. The white thorn and the red thorn have fairy gayed the May valleys of Knock Maroon. Fresh and made of all smiles as on the eve of Kilalhu. And I like to think that that's Killaloo, near where I come from. Since her debut novel, The Country Girls, Edna O'Brien has written more than 20 works of fiction. Her book, James Joyce, was published in the year 2000, and her memoir, Country Girl, is due for publication this coming autumn. I met Edna at the Marion Hotel when she was in Dublin recently. Well, Edna O'Brien, um, pleasure to be with you again. I know you've been a great writer most of your life, but you've been a reader for even longer. When did you first read something by Joyce? I think, I, Lachlan, I'm sure I told you before, but do you mind if I repeat it? Of course. You may not have told me. <laughs> it, was, it was in my, <laughs> my laborious days. Uh, I was working in the chemist shop in Cabra Road, and I had a half day once a month. And money was tight, as you can imagine. And so my enjoyment was to stand in Bachelor's Walk outside a bookshop there that had second-hand books outside with a bit of canvas to keep. Was that Webbs? The ra- Webbs. Webbs, I, I remember I think it, it was Webbs. Yeah. And I have the book still. It's like my little treasury, to tell you the truth. It's a small book with a yellow cover. It's a Faber book, in fact. And it was called Introducing... James Joyce by T.S. Eliot. And he had extract from, he had one short story, Araby, extract from Portrait, Ulysses, and Finnegan's Wake. Maybe not Finnegan's Wake, I'm not certain, but in short, I opened it at random, and the page I opened was describing the both beautiful and doomed Christmas dinner in the Dedalus house. I felt before, as I was reading it, I know this because I have seen I've in my this. life. Yes. It was both vivid and totally convincing. It was a little grander than, say, our house in Drewsborough. Yes. But the idea of the turf fire banged high. Yes. And all the wine and whiskey and whatever was already in cutlass decanters and there was candlelight. So it was preparation as for a fairy tale mm. and seen through the eyes of Stephen. Yes. And then uh, everything is hearty, it's over hearty, it's too happy almost. Hmm. And then the eruption about Parnell. Dante stared across the table, her cheeks shaking. 
Mr. Casey struggled up from his chair and bent across the table towards her, scraping the air from before his eyes with one hand, as though he were tearing aside a cobweb. No God for Ireland, he cried. We have had too much God in Ireland. Away with God. Blasphemer! Devil! screamed Dante, starting to her feet and almost spitting in his face. Uncle Charles and Mr. Dedalus pulled Mr. Casey back into his chair again, talking to him from both sides reasonably. He stared before him out of his dark, flaming eyes, repeating, Away with God, I say! Dante shoved her chair violently aside and left the table, upsetting her napkin ring, which rolled slowly along the carpet and came to rest against the foot of an easy chair. Mr. Dedalus rose quickly and followed her towards the door. At the door, Dante turned round violently and shouted down the room, her cheeks flushed and quivering with rage. Devil out of hell! We won! We crushed him to death! Fiend! The door slammed behind her. And as I read it, I had been writing little flibberty-gibbet pieces, Joyce would like that word, in the chemist shop. I mean, when well, I... Well, of course, he submitted his first pieces to the firm of Mills and Boone, so he would respect your He would respect it. And when I read that, and I really mean it, I thought, ah, oh, if you want to write, you go back in, in, in to the original family matrix. Hmm. And, and, and that's what he taught me. You weren't intimidated in any way. You know, some writers, for instance, Neil Jordan has sometimes explained his move from writing to cinema by saying he felt almost futile as a writer because there was so little to do after Joyce. You felt him more as an enabler, did you? Well, I just want to... I like this question, so I'll answer it. T.S. Eliot himself, who made the selection and who admired Joyce very much, after... And I'll come to my own reaction in a moment. After reading Ulysses, he said there were so many... There was 18 different versions of style, alone style, mm. regardless of... Con but he said it seemed to make all other writing unnecessary. Joyce yes. had done everything. But Eliot didn't stop him writing, and he went on to write great work. What it is, I would have been daunted if I had read Ulysses before I came to Portrait and the short stories. Because Ulysses is so enormous in everything. It's, it's the mountain. I've often wondered, Edna, if Portrait of the Artist did in some way condition the writing of the country girls, because, of course, the big... I mean, they're both coming-of-age novels, and you're focusing on the female rather than the male side of the experience. Well, it's uh, very complimentary, but I think I have to question it. If I had thought that, I, I would never have written The Country Girls with the freedom by, in which yes. I wrote it. I was very free writing The Country Girls. Where there is a resemblance of where, like many another, I have um, learned and stolen from the master, is the idea of, through art, uh, a young person, in my case a woman, a young girl, finding exile and um, freedom, well, relative freedom. April 26. Mother is putting my new second-hand clothes in order. She prays now, she says, that I may learn in my own life and away from home and friends what the heart is and what it feels. Amen. So be it. Welcome, O oh life. I go to encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience 
and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. April 27. Old father, old artificer, stand me now and ever in good stead. Edna, you came out of that world, and so did I indeed, just about, and Joyce certainly did, where young kids were given fire and brimstone sermons, the like of which we read in Portrait of the Artist. Oh, yes. And you're talking about Joyce at the same time as a deeply, and I agree, a kind of religious writer, um, not just a writer about religion, but someone with a, a very intense vision which is captured in the prose. Do you think that uh, that kind of Catholic formation was very enabling for artists? Oh, very. Oh, let's always thank, <laughs> thank the gods for... Absolutely, because what it has... I have wonderful prayer books, for instance, and missals from home, yes. you know, from our house when I was growing from up. From your girlhood. From my girlhood. And they, in their ecstasy and in the, uh, the, what it reaches in terms of language and of the idea of God. Joyce was dismissing God and was used, literature had become the God for him instead of the God that he was taught in Klongos or wherever, or that taught by his mother. Mm -hmm. But the actual approach, that etheric, if that's the right word, is very similar in, now not the ordinary language of ordinary prayer books, I'm speaking of, you know, top-notch ones. You're talking Ecstasy. about a mystical moment Mystic, almost. That was the word I meant to find. I never had as educated a sermon as <laughs> Joyce had. Mine were more bacon and cabbage sermons, if yes. you know what I mean. Yeah. But I have a book called Celtic Miscellany. Uh, it's published a long time ago. And in it, there are sermons from down the centuries, are translated from Latin and from Irish or Gaelic into English. I'm sure Joyce read that book, because in it there are sentences that are not exactly the same. First of all, the idea is the same, but what is very similar is the detail of the absolute the furniture of hell. And mm. by the furniture, I mean everything that's there. For instance, they write about, you know, the seven uh, quarters of hell. But in such detail as he used in his sermon, and Joyce was, an, as you know, a most uh, voracious reader, and also I would think he dolled up the sermon in, in Clancos, because... Nobody's it, that good. Nobody's <laughs> that good. <laughs> a holy saint, one of our own fathers, I believe it was, was once vouchsafed a vision of hell. It seemed to him that he stood in the midst of a great hall, dark and silent, save for the ticking of a great clock. The ticking went on unceasingly, and it seemed to the saints that the sound of the ticking was the ceaseless repetition of the words ever, never, ever, never. Ever to be in hell, never to be in heaven. Ever to be shut off from the presence of God, never to enjoy the beatific vision. Ever to be eaten with flames, gnawed by vermin, goaded with burning spikes, never to be free from those pains. Ever to have the conscience upbraid one, the memory enrage, the mind filled with darkness and despair, 
never to escape, ever to curse and revile the foul demons who gloat fiendishly over the misery of their dupes, never to behold the shining raiment of the blessed spirits, ever to cry out of the abyss of fire to God for an instant, a single instant of respite from such awful agony, never to receive, even for an instant, God's pardon, ever to suffer, never to enjoy, ever to be damned, never to be saved, ever, never, ever, never. Oh, what a dreadful punishment. I think you've written very beautifully about his relation with his mother, and you've described it as a kind of spiritual companionship, which it was, especially when it you was. read those letters from Paris. From pa well, they're also a little bit um, demanding, and, you know, send money yes. was in them. And she had to she had to do errands that was impossible for her. They were the letters of a loved son. I'm not sure they were the letters of a loving son, but, but of a loved son because he was ordering her around, do this, get, send him a pair of glasses, send money. But he was sharing his reading with her as well and his ideas about literature, wasn't he? Was. He was. He was a bit. And then, of I mean, course, he had to cut the cord. And he cut the cord from the time and many do, he's not alone in this, from the time of his first sexual experience. Do you think in some way he felt he could not look his mother in the eye thereafter? I honestly do, otherwise why would he have never written about her? Uh, he, he only wrote, as you know, in, in Ulysses, in, in Bella Cohen's uh, brothel. I mean, the woman who appears in sackcloth and grey is a, is a shrew, is a female, monster. He never, in letters, he referred to his father and came to love and forgive his father hmm. and identify with his because father. Because he was a sinner. Because he was a sinner, exactly. Yes. But it is odd that he never, hmm. having been so attached to his mother, and as you know, after her death, and he describes it and her holding the quilt and talking about buttercups or daisies yes. or something. You wouldn't kneel down to pray for your mother on her deathbed when she asked you. Why? Because you have the cursed Jesuit strain in you, only it's injected the wrong way. To me, it's all a mockery and beastly. Her cerebral lobes are not functioning. She calls the doctor Sir Peter Teasel and picks buttercups off the quilt. Humour her till it's over. You crossed her last wish in death, and yet you sulk with me because I don't whinge like some hired mute from Lalouette's. Absurd. And after that, to my knowledge, but you may, you do know more than I about Joyce, I don't think anything tender or uh, any memory of his mother, apart from the castigation and, re and getting, disposing of her, I don't remember any other in his work, any other well, Why is that? I mean, it's almost like after breaking up with the first intense girlfriend, that you can't go there again or something. There's something almost of that quality about it, isn't Oh, there? yes, it's very incestuous. Yeah. And the fear of. He would hate all this. But you know what, what Jung said? He was thought, it was thought he could help Lucia Joyce, Lucia from her madness. So he read um, Ulysses in order to prepare himself, because Joyce had conceded that he would let Jung meet her once. Didn't happen. But Jung read, he especially read the Penelope section, and I love this phrase, and Joyce would love it. He said, there's plenty of psychological peaches here to explore. 
Yes. It was a great phrase, psychological peaches. And Joyce was afraid that his psychological peaches would be stolen off his tree, I'm sure. Then I hate that confession. When I used to go to Father Corrigan, he touched me, Father. And what harm if he did? Where? And I said, on the canal bank, like a fool. But whereabouts on your person, my child? On the leg, behind, high up, was it? Yes. Rather high up, was it? Where you sit down? Yes. Oh, Lord, couldn't he say bottom right out and have done with it? What has that got to do with it? And did you... Oh, whatever way he put it, I forget. No, Father. I've always thought of the Molly soliloquy as a great blow for sexual liberation in literature. But I have, as I'm sure you did, met feminists who think of it as an invasive document. How can a mere male assume to dramatise the entire contents of a female mind and describe yeah, the feminine well, uh, sexual impulse you know, and so on? They have a bee in their bonnet about Joyce. I mean, Kate Millett and other feminists have said Joyce was con- he was contemptuous towards women. That's ridiculous. If we're going to say he was contemptuous, he was also contemptuous towards men. Many more of Many them. Many more so. And Mary uh, Cullum, his classmate, though, did say once, didn't she, that he didn't like intellectual women. I would... A lot of men, Hemingway didn't. A, a lot of um, big-shot writers have that um, drawback. And that's a pity, and I would agree with any feminist who said that. But the idea that Molly Bloom and that most astounding, whatever number of words it is, that opens up Mm. every channel of femaledom, that that is against women or discipline. What was the phrase? Invasive. Well, too bad. So is sex, if we come to think of it. And literature itself has to be an invasion. And so is birth. So where do we draw the line? No, it's a narrow and uh, actually ill-advised um, suggestion of theirs. But in the case of Molly Bloom, uh, just to finish with it, I'm sure some of, of the, some, not all, Nora would definitely have been an initial inspiration yes. for just that language, that gallop of language, you know, the sentences all running on, nothing. And his mother's letters... Hmm. They don't deal with the same topics, but his mother, the few letters that of his mother to him when he was in Paris have that same just stream of consciousness, Yes, if you like. He got it, it was pure, and then he made it impure. Yeah, it's very interesting to think of it like that, that it wasn't just from Nora that he understood the flights of a woman's mind. Yes. It was also from and his that, mother. Yes, that you can't stop it. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a flood of thought and everything. And my own mother, to be uh, egotistical for a moment, who wrote me all these, you know, hundreds, thousands of letters that I have, it's the same, it's a country woman. Not a city woman, you see. And you kept those letters? Oh, yes. Unlike Joyce, who destroyed his parents' letters. Uh, well, it's the one piece of common sense <laughs> I have. Um, no, I have them. They're in boxes. But my mother's letters would say something like, and didn't I look out the window and thought it was snowing? And what was it but the two little new dogs that I got from Wicklow had chewed the sheets and spat them out on the ground? People say that your last book, she would gallop from one thing to another. 
It's That's terrific. Oh, they're yeah. brilliant. Oh, they're brilliant. My mother, who hated literature... Was producing it. Was producing it, exactly. <laughs> Just shows you. It's interesting too, isn't it, about Young reading the Molly Bloom soliloquy, yeah. that when Nora Barnacle, Joyce's partner and yeah. later his wife, heard this encomium from Young, she shook her head sadly and said, Jim knows nothing at all about women. Women. Who, who, who do you think got the right of it in those comments on Joyce and women? Well, now that's a very... That's one we can explore, except we <laughs> won't find the answer. I, I think he knew a lot about women, and that cannot be denied. I think Nora felt in some ways that she had a mastery over him. Hmm. And, you know, she says, oh, writers, meaning him in particular, up in your tail. Now, that's a pretty sexual, (laughs) not too innuendoed either. What he liked was to listen. He let Nora and I speak. He has always been a listener. Mrs. Moon Gilbert. She and her husband, Stuart Gilbert, were friends of the Joyce's. And uh, she was really a very charming person. Very Irish, but charming. And uh, we talked about a lot of things, and she was very devoted to, to her husband. And he was so devoted to her that he could not live without her. But by saying he knew nothing about women, I just think maybe this one tiny inlet into it. For all his genius, Joyce was an extraordinarily innocent man as well. He was disingenuous about some things. I met a niece of his once, years ago, here in Dublin, when I was trying to write something about Joyce. And she told me the following story. Uh, Like many young people, she didn't like to eat much or eat meat. And they were having lunch somewhere in Paris, naturally in a restaurant, because Nora Barnacle did not reach for a saucepan in her life. <laughs> she didn't know much she about cooking. She wasn't a domestic goddess. Whatever a, kind of goddess she was was not so domestic. Joyce, you know, was always poor, as you know. And the niece, like many young children, didn't want to eat. She didn't want to eat meat. And Joyce said to her, if you eat it, I'll get you a pearl necklace. And naturally she ate that dinner. And Joyce really couldn't afford it because he was... Uh, always, even when he got money, he was broke. And we'll come to Miss Harriet Weaver in a moment, I hope, talking of money. He bought her the necklace. Now, the only, who would think that the man who wrote, because then he had written Ulysses, would somehow have that kind of innocence and tenderness, which he had. I mean, Anne Olivia, to me, along with Rosalind in As You Like It, are the two greatest, very different, and most lovable and most extraordinarily female creations. They're mm. very different. And Olivia, all soul and ether, and Rosalind, all pluck, yes. and male um, <laughs> imposture, taking mm. on the male. And when you say, Nora, his wife said he doesn't know about women, there would be aspects that he would not know. But he knew women's bodies, and he knew women's souls. And he knew, in the case of Gertie MacDowell, women's just that silly little longing with queen of ointment and little jellies to make the breath. He knew a lot about women. She felt the warm flush, a danger signal always with Gertie MacDowell, surging and flaming into her cheeks. Till then, they'd only exchanged glances of the most casual. But now, under the brim of her new hat... 
she ventured a look at him. And the face that met her gaze there in the twilight, wan and strangely drawn, seemed to hoard the saddest she had ever seen. I agree with you. There's an incredible tenderness in Joyce's relation, first with his mother, then with Nora. But when he is helped by intellectual women, when Harriet Shaw Weaver gives him the equivalent of a million pounds in today's money, or when Sylvia Beach is intrepid and brave enough to publish this yes. pornographic masterpiece in Paris, they don't get dealt with all that well, do they? Oh, no, oh, oh he treated them appallingly. His treatment of Harriet Weaver is, is, is something, a blemish on his character. Because she, as you know, sent the money, and he was... I'm afraid, shameless in asking for the next and the next instalment. And Joyce did, I think, the worst thing he could ever have done. And again, why? Because it's slightly, I never thought of this before, but it's slightly what he did to his mother. You know, you must always bite the hand that feeds you, as the proverb says. Hmm. She couldn't respond as he wanted her to, to Finnegan's Wake, because she didn't understand it. Yes. And, and I'm not sure anybody does, except Joyce. And because she was not caustic, but a little reserved, and he says, is there nothing you like about it? And still more money had to come and come. But what the worst thing he did, he became very grand, as you know, and formal, and she went for a birthday. This is not the worst thing. She went for his birthday to Paris, and, you know, he was sitting in the chair with the cane, and by now he had rings on, and actually a little bit affected. And Miss Weaver, nobody could speak until he spoke first. And she who was paying for this party was treated like a mendicant. Mm. But the worst thing was the way he cut her off, the ruthlessness and the finality of that cut off has a resemblance or a genesis in what he did to his own mother. It's the so I scene. don't think, yeah. if I may say so, because she was not actually an intellectual, if we're, if, when the chips are down, she was a very intelligent woman. Hmm. But I don't think it was her intellect. He just, she, she, was, she was still giving the money, but he felt she was no longer necessary to him. And he appointed a secretary, uh, is it Paul Leon, was that yes. his name? Yeah. Who wrote Miss Weaver an unpardonable letter about not writing to Mr. Joyce again and not bothering him. Hmm. Now, anybody, I'm, I'm shocked that Joyce would do that. And the tenderness that he had and that he showed in his work was leached out of him in his later years. One would be Finnegan's Wake and nobody wanting to read it. And the other is something in The Seven Deadly Sins. And that was a primordial vanity. The word primordial may not be in the seven dead. Pride, pride, is, the pride, pride, pride is the pride first. Pride is the first. But, he, but he, you're he, proud too. Hasn't a writer got to have pride in some way just to survive? I wouldn't do that to anyone. I wouldn't do that, no. That's brutal. Hmm. But I wonder if I met James Joyce. You see, I think that I would get on with him. First of all, I love his work. But secondly, and this... Neil Jordan, if he's listening to this, would say, God, she's arrogant. I wouldn't be afraid of him. Hmm. I'm not afraid of him at all. I know how great he is. I know how beyond human realm almost he is in what he has achieved. Or as Samuel Beckett put it, I bow and bow and bow again to him. But that doesn't mean I should be afraid of him. 
No. I would rather meet him in the evening hmm. than in the morning. Why? <laughs> Little alcohol <laughs> 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 to soften. But me. not too late. Yeah. Well. He might be mellower earlier. Yes, but there was something. There's a moment that I remember that I put in my book of Arthur Power. I think it was saying to him once. Joyce, people say of you, you have no feeling. Hmm. And he said, my God, am I a man without feeling? And he was right. He was a man with great feeling who sometimes, what's the word, stamped, stamped on those feelings. Well, he was hurt. And often very sensitive people can be terribly hurt. We know that when he tried to publish those early stories, as he said, mere printers objected to the use of a word like bloody. Well, I think the history of the publication of Dubliners is unbelievable in the setbacks. You know, going to a solicitor, paying a solicitor money, money he didn't even have, and the solicitor saying these stories are filth and they shouldn't be published. He was totally unbefriended on every level by publishers who say they might publish it. Then if he took, well, the one bit I love, <laughs> There was too many public houses mentioned. Sorry to bring drink in into, in the same breath. If he removed some of, he said, if he removed some of, because the, oh, they'd sue. That was it. The publicans would sue. But sure, it'd be considered branding now, and they'd be giving him money I for know. the mention. And he said, if he removed some of the names, that perhaps <laughs> they'd be less suing. It was very, very, very hard for him. And put that alongside the fact that he knew he had broken new ground in Irish literature forever. Hmm. Those stories even, nothing had been written before of that inestimable kind of, by by purity, I mean purity of mind and intensity, nothing had. So he knew he was great and to be thwarted and and, and insulted and refused left, right and centre undoubtedly made him uh, bitter. And reading Joyce very carefully, as I did, when I bought that book for the fourpence, the first thing I did, and it has been a great, was a great help to me, was to copy out in my own copybook Joyce's paragraphs. Yes. And there is something when you actually speak or speak aloud to yourself, and or, or and both and copy, it is you never forget it. Hmm. A, but B. You learn from it. It's as if, and I don't hope this is going to be thought, you know, that I'm being self-important. It's as if you are almost writing it yourself yes. when you copy it out in your own hand. Yeah. And as I say, for all his failings, I absolutely could not, along with revering him, I could not but love James Joyce. Well, Ed, and I remember Joe O'Connor when he was a student saying to me that he did exactly the same with passages from McGahern that you were doing all that time earlier with passages yeah. from Joyce. Yeah. It's a wonderful apostolic succession. May the feast of wisdom and the flow of soul continue. And I think we'll have lots more conversations about this man. Oh, is that it? That's it. Oh, I was only getting, getting a few <laughs> thoughts together. Thank you, Declan. Thank you very much. Thank you. James Joyce and Me was presented by Declan Kybert. The producer was Bernadette Comerford. The readings were by Barry McGovern and Anne-Marie Horan. And the programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.
Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.